Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Isabella de la Husse. Isabella is a former attorney on Wall Street, a mother of five kids, and a terrific endurance athlete. She's run marathons around the country, ultra marathons, even completing an Ironman triathlon. She's also a stage four lung cancer patient. She owes her life and her vitality to some extraordinary advances we've seen in cancer biology. You can listen to her describe her molecular profile and how that fortunately matched her up with a drug that worked wonders. She's now making the most of every day. Her story is inspirational to say the least. Some of you may have read about Isabella in the New York Times last year. The Times wrote about Isabella climbing Aconcagua, the highest peak in South America at 22,840 feet, with her daughter after being diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. The story resonated deeply with me for a few reasons. First, to see a cancer patient living life fully, that's a beautiful thing. To see someone cherishing every day and spending it with family in a meaningful, bonding environment, that hit me. I also love the mountains, and I know how demanding it is physically and mentally to climb that peak and push yourself in the thin air with two healthy lungs. It took immense strength and mental toughness for Isabella to reach the summit and get down safely, which she did. If you haven't read that story, I encourage you to go back and read it. Seeing people like Isabella thrive, Essentially, she's the living, breathing personification of everything I dream of through my charity work for the Klein to Fight Cancer at Fred Hutch. Isabella is now on a new mission. She's bicycling across America to raise awareness for lung cancer patients. She will be spreading the word about mindfulness and positive thinking and how that has gotten her through some tough times. You can follow her journey starting today, March 10, in San Diego at bikebreathebelieve.org. As members of the biopharma industry, you get to go to work every day with people who have the capacity to extend life and improve quality of life for people like Isabella. It's an amazing thing when it works. I hope you find her story inspiring. Now, before we start, if you like the long run and you don't already subscribe to Timmerman Report, you're missing out. One longtime reader, Oleg Nodelman of EcoR1 Capital, wrote, Timmerman Report is essential reading at EcoR1 Capital. Luke's thoughts and insights not only report on the biotech sector, but help shape it, end quote. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Ask me about group discounts, luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, please join me and Isabella de la Husse on the long run. Isabella de la Husse, welcome and thank you for joining me today on the long run. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. Now, Isabella, uh, you have a very inspiring story, and I'm really looking forward to hearing you tell it to the biopharmaceutical community. But before we walk through kind of your life story, uh, can you tell me just a little bit about this bicycling across America um, expedition that you are about to embark on here to raise awareness for lung cancer? 
Absolutely. So I will be biking from San Diego to Florida, um, Jacksonville, Florida, starting March 10th to raise awareness for lung cancer. It's coming together really quickly because I, um, I'm currently being treated at, at Sloan Kettering 4 stage for lung cancer and, and have to fit this in my own treatment schedule. <laughs> so um, it's being fit between, between my scans. I was very lucky to have a, a stable scan a few weeks ago. And so I'm going to try to do this ride uh, in the time I have before my next scan and do as much uh, awareness raising as I can in the course of the ride. It's really amazing uh, to have stage four lung cancer and to be able to do this and some of the other things you've done. Um, you're many things, like we all are. Um, a, a lawyer, a career woman, a mom, uh, a patient, and an endurance outdoor athlete. Um, so I wonder, maybe, Isabella, can you just start us from the beginning? Where does your story start? Sure. So my story starts in Louisiana, where I was born and, and spent the early part of my life in southwest Louisiana, good old Cajun country. Um, and then I went from Louisiana to Princeton for, uh, for college and then on to law school. And uh, became Now, wait a, a second. Going mm -hmm. to Princeton from northeast, northwest Louisiana? Southwest. Um, southwest. <laughs> We're talking bayous. Southwest. Okay. Yes. Uh that's a big transition. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about like what kind of, you must have done pretty well in school. Uh, how did you make that move? So I was always uh, very intellectually curious. So that equated pretty much to applying myself and doing well in school and really always wanting to um, expand my, my horizons. The So that's where, you know, looking at Princeton and, and moving from, Louisiana to, to New Jersey for college uh, came from one of the things though, you know, growing up in Louisiana, there's a lot of, of messaging to women in particular about what their roles are. And in my growing up years, a lot of that was, you know, your role is to be a wife and a mother. And, and then you also have messaging about sort of the Southern, what defines a Southern woman and, you know, when I got to Princeton, this is just a great, I think, example. So today I'm this, I like to climb mountains. I do trekking. I, you know, I'm used to carrying my own pack. When I got to Princeton and doing orientation, they said we were going to go backpacking through the Pinelands and I was given a pack and I fully expected someone else to carry it for me because <laughs> that's what <laughs> men did in the South, you know, for women. I've come a long way. Um, and, and, you know, the same with sort of redefining you know, I, motherhood's been a big part of my life, um, as is being being a wife. But I've also tried to have uh, my own career and, and path and and passions. Okay, um, so you went to Princeton. What did you study there? I studied politics and European cultural studies. Okay, okay. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you grow up? I knew I wanted to do something um, that exposed me to travel and the international community. And so I chose the legal path. It was, my father was a doctor. I, I knew I did not want to be a doctor. And um, in the world that I came from, those were like the options, you know, 
you want to go on, you're a lawyer, a doctor, and being a lawyer was the path I chose. It actually wasn't um, a more sophisticated choice than that, but it has turned out to be a, it was a wonderful path and a wonderful way to develop critical thinking skills and really launched me um, on a path to international exposure and experience. So you went to Columbia for law school. What, um, what did you specialize in? So my focus was international law and really international relations. And I, I wasn't sure at that point whether that would be at, at the transnational level where you're looking at, at transnational organizational work or working with, with legal issues that arise um, in the private sector uh, and I ended up doing project finance, which was developing or developing um, energy projects in Asia for most of okay. that. Okay, so um, you're you're entering the financial world, kind of corporate law, mm-hmm. let's say, uh, and you start. When did you meet your husband and start a family? So he also went to Princeton, but we did not overlap, and was at White and Case as a lawyer um, a few years ahead of me when I joined White and Case. And we met there and uh, he soon, after I joined, he left White and Case and and it, we had a lot of the same interest, same passion for travel. And it's it's been a wonderful 30 years. <laughs> okay, okay. And so how long did you stay kind of in that full-time legal world. I mean, that's a pretty demanding, um, pressurized kind of environment, I would imagine. It was very high pressure, very long hours. And I, I, I was at White and Case for seven years, counting a year I clerked in the Southern District, and then moved from White and Case to Lehman Brothers. And for most of those years at White and Case, I was in Hong Kong and joined Lehman Brothers in Hong Kong. And the trick actually was trying to manage that career with having children. I had started um, my family as a young attorney, and that was very (laughs) difficult (laughs) to try to manage and balance all of that. Yeah. What what kind of leave policies or support did they offer? This was early on, so so not much. Things have gotten much, much better, I believe, for women. Um, at that point, I don't think anybody uh, appreciated women who, who were trying to both have careers and raise families. And how many kids and what years were they born? So I, I have five children, and I had my first child in 1992, and it Pretty much was 92, 94, 96, and 98, and then 2001. Wow. So you're really juggling a lot of things here with this um, um, demanding career and um, pretty large family by most people's standards. Uh, you, you end up uh, leaving Lehman, I guess it's 2008. This is right around the time of the financial crisis, right? Right, exactly. And what did you decide to do next? I took some time then. I worked, uh, volunteered in a local nonprofit um, for a couple of years, uh, trying to figure out what my next uh, career would be. And 
I had, I came back to one of my original interests in, in college, which was cultural studies and became involved in a business called material culture, which is a retail institution for, um, for ethnological, uh, items from all over the world, handmade, handcrafted. And then, um, also, uh, became, we started an auction business when I joined the business. So it's been a very exciting second or third career and ties exactly back to what I was interested in as a young person. International travel being sort of this through line through your life. Yes. Okay. Okay. So when did you discover this passion for um, endurance athletics? So it's interesting. I came to endurance athletics um, from an endurance sort of uh, business career. I was working so hard as a lawyer and then at Lehman Brothers, and I sort of had this idea that, you know, I can do anything if I can work, you know, 24-7 for months at a time. And so my first race, I kind of just jumped into 100K in Hong Kong to raise uh, funds for Oxfam. And it was an endurance run, an ultra run, and it was an amazing experience. And, you know, I had always been sort of a gym athlete, but never done anything that involved, you know, running 100 kilometers at a time. And it just opened up an entirely new world of physical endeavors for me. So you had a fitness routine of some sort throughout the legal career, just like go to the gym for the usual 30 minutes or something? Or Yes. In fact, if you ask people what I was best known for at Princeton, they would say uh, my aerobics classes. I taught aerobics. <laughs> people loved my classes and I love teaching and I love the energy and the, you know, that back then it was the high impact uh, aerobics. And, you know, I complemented that with running and and other gym type fitness activities. Wow. So you did this sort of thing and maintained decent baseline fitness, but you signed up for this 100K race, never having even run a marathon, which is about 42K. I mean, were you scared? Like you thought, do I even, do you think you could even do this? I, I was never scared and it actually never occurred to me that I couldn't do it only because I knew what I was capable of in terms of maintaining focus and, and working the hours I was working and being a mother at the same time. I was just feeling like there's nothing harder than that. <laughs> so, so how hard really can it be? And um, I think that goes to show you, and, and now I understand that is sort of the mental toughness part. And that is what a lot of um, extreme athletic activities are about. You know, if you have the basic fitness, it really becomes a mental challenge. Yeah. So how did that first race go for you? It was fabulous. It was one of the hardest things, one of the most exciting. I loved the idea of going through the night and being part of a team. We were a four-person team that had to stay together. So it had a, it was a, a challenging race for a lot of reasons, um, it's called the McElhose Path, actually, in Hong Kong was the race. And it's the training ground for the Gurkhas, um, who were um, the N Nepalis who 
who sort of protected Hong Kong <laughs> for years. Famous yes, warriors. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you had this great experience and you just, you had a sense of your own mental toughness, your own, let's call it tolerance for challenge, tolerance mm-hmm. for adversity. <laughs> uh, but, but this uh, lit a spark in you, it sounds like. It made you think that maybe you could do more things like this. Absolutely. And the only thing that kept me from jumping into more was just the amount of time I was actually working and being a mother. So it took a few years before I made it a more regular part of my my life. The, the children, you know, got a little bit older and I was able to um, to take them with me on these. And, and that opened up a whole new path of sharing these experiences with them. Yeah. So how old were your kids when you started um, encouraging them to explore their own capabilities? So I've, when I first started doing um, running and triathlon, my oldest was 10. And that's actually about the age that I've started all of them with sort of longer endurance Activities. That's the youngest age that you can climb Kilimanjaro. And after I climbed Kilimanjaro with my first child, I, it was something I wanted to do with all the others. And so... Was that your first mountain? It was. Yes. <laughs> 19,000 feet, highest peak in Africa. Uh, tens of thousands of people do it every year. But it's really... I mean, I've been there. I was there a year ago. It's it's special, and it's especially special when you can share it with a family member. And your your oldest was how old at the time? He was actually a little bit older. He was probably thirteen. We actually came to climbing Killy because we went to Kilimanjaro to run the marathon. So it was actually an afterthought that we were going to climb Kilimanjaro. It was offered as an option after the marathon. And I don't know that either of us knew exactly what we were getting into, but we both loved the experience and that experience inspired him to go on and climb the seven summits for Trevor project as part of his gap year project. And it inspired me to continue climbing mountains as well. For those unfamiliar with the seven summits, these are the highest peaks on all seven continents. Uh, It's a a major lifetime achievement for mountaineers. Uh, I think about 500 people or so have done it. Um, I, I'm on number five, and I plan to complete the seven <laughs> within a few years. But r- really impressive that your son has gone on to do that. Uh, but back to this experience on Kilimanjaro. Um, this is different than running 100K uh, or, or other kinds of endurance activities. What did you learn or take away from that experience with your first big mountain? The, um, well, how much I had to learn was the first thing. (laughs) There's so much that goes into a challenge like that. That's actually in addition to your fitness, um, the, the altitude piece, I'd never experienced altitude before and, and learning sort of what that does to your body and how to uh, manage the fear that can come with that was a big learning experience, learning about the importance of equipment and preparation, um, it was it was a powerful experience um, and probably one of my first real experiences with with intense mindfulness to um, 
you know, be able to stay focused in the moment and, and, and not let fear get the better of me and, you know, to make good decisions all the way up. I want to come back to this question of mindfulness and mental toughness uh, later. Um, but at what point did you get your diagnosis of lung cancer? So I was diagnosed with lung cancer in January uh, 2018. And uh, just to give you a little bit of the backstory, I had been at that part of my life really competing in marathons and triathlon and climbing and doing really well. I was a competitive athlete and winning my age group, sometimes winning races all out. And even the fall before I was diagnosed, I was still very, very strong and did not uh, have any sense that I was as sick as I was. I knew I had a pain that felt like a muscle pain in my back, but I, you know, the lung cancer diagnosis was a huge uh, surprise and wake up call. And obviously you're, you're not a smoker, right? I have never smoked. I actually don't even, I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> I, I don't eat much meat. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I try really so this, hard to be a, a healthy person. So um, can, you, can you say a little bit about what the doctor said, what the diagnosis was? So it took about a month to really fine tune the diagnosis. And, you know, it starts with you have tumors and then... Maybe they're not cancer, maybe they are, and then it okay, it is cancer, and then it's non-small cell lung cancer, and then within non-small lung cancer, they have to do, or they're doing now, the mutation testing to determine what kind of treatment will be effective. And that was a huge and important step in my, my diagnosis and enabled me to get on a targeted treatment that has enabled me to continue to live the life that I would like to lead in terms of being physically strong and active. Okay. So living in and around the Princeton area, you have access to some of the best doctors there are. And you you've very quickly got what sounds like a molecular profile, a specific mutation. They could see what was driving your cancer. Exactly. I am EGFR positive. And there are targeted therapies for that mutation. It's my understanding there are six mutations in that non-small cell world um, that they have targeted therapies for. And I was very lucky to, to have the EGFR mutation. It was a long process, though, and very stressful. It, it took about a month to get the, the tumor biopsied and, and to have the mutation testing done. And they were feeding me the results sort of piecemeal. So I found out I was, I did not have the mutation for the first five. <laughs> and that left me feeling pretty desperate that I be EGFR positive. And in, in fact, I was, and that is the most common mutation for women who've never smoked. Well, I can imagine, you know, given everything that you had going on in your life at the time and really self-identifying as an endurance athlete and taking pride and, and seeking challenge in all the things that you did, this must have really hit hard. 
I, I mean, it would, it would shake a lot of people up to get that kind of diagnosis. It really did hit hard. And what was interesting as well about my state of mind at the time, I had been practicing um, a yoga mindfulness. I had taken that path about 10 years earlier to help manage the stress I had from the, you know, at that point I had five teenagers and I was still trying to have a career. And, and I turned to, um, to mindfulness and meditation for help. And I was feeling before my diagnosis that I had found the answer to longevity and to, you know, living a, a, a healthy life. And so it was such a shocker to, to be diagnosed and then to find, you know, I sort of came to the realization over the first few weeks after my diagnosis that all of that training was actually training I needed to sort of prepare to die in a way. And it was, it helped me embrace the diagnosis, accept it, and really move quickly um, beyond the fear and negative emotions that come with the diagnosis so that I could really focus all my energy on moving forward and being positive and, and doing what I could to heal myself um, that way. But there was this period of uncertainty followed by a definitive diagnosis of being EGFR positive. Um, did you then go on one of the targeted agents? Can you say which one? I did. I have been taken to taking Tegriso, Osmertinib, um, since my diagnosis and literally within 24 hours of starting to Griso, I felt better. I mean, it was an unbelievable drug. <laughs> and I had had, by the time I was diagnosed, the cancer in my spine, even in the month between diagnosis and starting treatment, it had eaten up my entire sacrum. I mean, I, I was bedridden in tremendous pain, um, the cancer was in my my pelvis. I had six tumors in my brain. It, it felt like I went from being a, a normal person to near death in a month's time. And then as soon as I started the treatment, things began to turn around. It was amazing. Wow. That is, uh, that is remarkable. That's that's kind of what gets people out of bed in the morning in the biopharmaceutical industry, hearing stories like that. Um, so I would imagine like your whole life goes on hold during this. I mean, you're probably thinking about getting your affairs in order. You're talking to your husband about your kids. I, I can barely imagine. You're certainly not planning the next 100K race or the next mountain or anything like that. <laughs> that, right? that, is, that is true, although... In between my diagnosis, I had been on a mission to to run marathons in in all the fifty states, and I did actually try. I'd flown down to Arizona to try to. I had seven left at the time to try to complete Arizona, and it's the only race I, I couldn't even get to the starting line. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but um, that was a that was a huge wake up call. And you know, I came home and then just waited until I could start a treatment. And it was about four months after I started to Griso that I was actually able to go back to Arizona and do that marathon. 
So at this point, it sounds like you've you've got a new lease on life. You're feeling like, hey, I can plan some of these things I've always wanted to do, like completing the 50 states of marathons or some of these other mountains. Uh, this would have been what what time frame? This is spring of 2018. Yes, it is. Yes. What else? What else were you thinking of in terms of um, how to reorient your life with the time that you have left? So I tell you, to the extent um, one can say they're grateful for, for a diagnosis like I had, I, I truly am because it was a, an amazing wake-up call for me to be more present in my life, to my children, to my family, um, and just to my actions. And I, it's made practically every moment since of a really joy-filled moment. I mean, I, I really have, the past two years have been the best two years of my life. And, um, you know, Tegriso has enabled me to, to move forward. Um, but part of the joy is also in just the recognition, the real recognition that we're all terminal, you know, and I'm actually not any different than anybody else. I just happen to have a diagnosis, but we are all terminal and, and the, and probably all should live in this state of awareness of that and, um, and enjoy every, every moment that we have. Well, you've, uh, you've been blessed and you recognize that after this kind of diagnosis that life is short and, uh, you want to live it fully, not just live longer, but live fully. Yes. What do you want to do with that time? And you decided, and this is where I and many others became aware of your story uh, in the New York Times. They ended up writing a story about your quest to climb Aconcagua with your daughter. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Sure. So one of the things that was um, on my mind at the time of the diagnosis is how I was going to pass on the life lessons that you want to pass on to your children in what could have been a month or two time frame. You know, when I was diagnosed, the prognosis wasn't great. <laughs> it was very much a get your life in order um, unless you happen to be responsive to one of these targeted therapies. So I sort of jumped into trying to think of what I wanted to teach my children and how I could teach those lessons quickly and effectively. And in my own experience, you know, saying things is one thing, but doing things is another. And, and so I knew that the doing things with my children would be the, the best way to, to teach those lessons. And, and each child needs sort of different lessons. You know, it's not like one, one package fits all. So I sort of set about thinking, okay, well, what am what do I want to teach my daughter? What do I want to teach my, my sons? Um, and sort of making a little game plan around each of them. And as I got stronger uh, on the Tegriso, I was able to think about executing um, some of the, you know, experiences I wanted that I thought would be useful to teaching the life lessons. Actually, the first, the first journey I, I took was, a walk, we walked the Camino, my fourth son and I, 
um, from in Spain to Santiago. We actually started in Lisbon and that was part of me healing the bones that had been broken in my body from the cancer was just daily walking. And that journey was a very powerful one for both of us. It has so many life lessons and, you know, the idea that you just don't know what's around the corner <laughs> one way or the other um, is a big one that you take away from, from walking the Camino. And so I went. So How that far was, is that? Uh, 500 miles was the distance that we walked. Okay. Not as challenging as a 100K run, the, the way you used to run, but it's sort of like the proverbial walk before you can run sort of thing. Yes. Build some strength back up. Yes, exactly. That's what I was trying to do. And, you know, for me, it was very important to be connected to nature as I built my strength. And, and that was very powerful for me to be outdoors every day for, you know, 26 days <laughs> to walk that Camino. Um, and it, it, I came back from it feeling so much stronger spiritually, physically, emotionally, and having passed sort of those life lessons on to my son. So, so that was the first journey with one of my children. And then, you know, the, the story that the New York Times wrote about the climb of Aconcagua was, was the activity that I did with my daughter. She's, she's uh, very adventurous and I knew it had to be something that would grab her attention. <laughs> so it was a, a big challenge for both of us. A lot more demanding. Now, for those not familiar, Aconcagua is the highest peak in South America. It's in Argentina. It's elevation 22,840 feet. Uh, so it's quite a bit higher than Kilimanjaro. This would have been the highest. It's the highest mountain in the world outside of Asia. And I'm, I'm taking it. This would have been your highest peak. Yes. Cor correct. Yes. And had your daughter done anything like this before? She and I had climbed K Kilimanjaro together uh, when she was a teenager and we had climbed smaller, you know, mountains. It's, uh, um, Kilabalu in Malaysia, but nothing like Aconcagua. So, okay. Now, uh, again, for those unfamiliar, this is a three week trip. Um, I've, I've done it the same route that is described that you did. And, I don't have stage four lung cancer, but I'll tell people that this is a demanding, it's not technically challenging, um, but it's a physically demanding climb to get up there almost 7,000 meters high. And I can't even imagine doing that with stage four lung cancer, the, the lung capacity required. Um, this, um, this is something, something special, something super demanding that you, you put upon yourself. Uh, yes, it was. It's actually one of those things um, that I you think about just because you can, you know, should you. And uh, I don't know that I'm, I'm thrilled that I did it. I'm thrilled that we were able to summit. And I think there was so much learning in that process. Um, but it was very hard on, on me physically. Um, it took all the sort of mental you know, focus, mindfulness tools I had to manage the fear that came with, you know, the difficulty with breathing as you go higher. And I mean, that was probably the most fear inducing was just when you wake up in the middle of the night and, and you 
can't breathe. And that's quite normal, actually, with altitude. Um, but it was, it, it scared me more, I think, because of the diagnosis. Um, but it was a very, uh, you know, she, my daughter, learned so much about her own ability to dig deep and her own mindset. You know, it's it's a climb and it's an activity that if you jump ahead and you start, your head starts to go negative and you start focusing on how hard it is or how miserable it is or how cold you are, you can really defeat yourself. And that's a really important lesson to learn, to be mindful of where you're your mind is going and what messages you're sending yourself and trying to keep it all positive. That's just rule number one when you're trying to, um, trying to accomplish something like that. Now, now, as you say, it's natural to um, when you're struggling to breathe, when you're gasping for air in the middle of the night uh, to, to panic, to really feel intense fear. And having been there myself on Mount Everest on a couple of occasions, uh, th- I know that that is counterproductive. That will only make you tense up physically and make it harder to breathe. <laughs> it-, it worsens the situation. And so I had that experience. I- I'm not as much of a mindfulness practitioner as I think you are, but um, did try to focus on the positive to try to override some of those fearful thoughts. Um, can you talk about how you how you coped with that. So it's interesting. I was very pleased with myself at the the time because I quote managed my fears. I was able to be very tuned into the moment and just sort of kept repeating, repeatedly asking myself, you know, are you, can you breathe? You know, yes. Even if it's more limited, I'm still breathing. I don't have frostbite. I can take the next step. And then you take the next step. Um, just trying to stay right in that moment and not jumping ahead and thinking of the days and the steps that lie ahead. So I, I put a lot of energy to managing my head and my fears in that way. And when I came back from Aconcagua and reflected on that experience over the course of a few months, I think that my lesson learned around managing my fear is that if I had embraced it and thought of it as expanding my comfort zone, as opposed to sort of managing, I may have been able to do it and use less energy in the process. And that expand your comfort zone concept, uh, I heard first in the movie Free Solo, Alex uh, Honnold, um talks about how he deals with fear. And it's such a more positive approach, the idea of expanding rather than trying to manage and constrict something like fear. It really is amazing how powerful the mind is. Uh, When I go back to these mountains now, I can draw on that experience of having worked through those kind of challenges and knowing that I can do it makes (laughs) a huge difference. I'm sure it does for you too. Yes. so you you climb Aconcagua with your daughter, Bella. I mean, there's a beautifully written story in the New York Times. I mean, I, I cried at a couple of points <laughs> reading it. I'm sure you heard that feedback from a lot of people. Um, what? Um, how did things change for you after that big f- photo spread and everything ran in the Times? Well, 
it's interesting in that I, I'm not, I wasn't a very public person or I don't necessarily seek out that kind of um, attention. So it was a, it was a journey for me to get comfortable with the attention and, you know, it sort of has brought more attention to me. And I, at first I sort of resisted it and I'm just like, just let me go back in my, my bubble and live my life. And I, I don't want anybody to focus on me. And then I've come to this place where if I can be a vehicle for messaging, um, you know, awareness building for lung cancer and um, sharing mindfulness tools, then I'm fine with the attention and, and I will be that vehicle. It, it's a new place for me and I've gotten more comfortable with the attention and trying to use it to, um, to message really positive um, ideas. That is really interesting for me to hear because um, I, I've had some similar feelings about it. Uh, you now will wake up one day recognizing that you have this new gift, really, in which you can inspire people, you can encourage people with cancer diagnoses or even without. Uh, and essentially, this is something you can run with and do something positive with. Yes, and that is what I'm trying to do. And, and that is, you know, part of what drives me to, to do this bike ride across the United States. It's just, yeah. So tell me a little bit about the thought process there. I mean, this is, um, 3000 miles across our great big country. <laughs> uh, how did you come to this, uh, as your next big challenge? So I've always, not always, since I was 40, I guess, I've, I've embraced triathlon, so swim, bike, run. So I learned to, to bike later in life, but it's become an activity that I enjoy. And I've actually done a few uh, cross-country trips um, with my children across UK and across recently with my husband and daughter across Tasmania. Um, and then my son, who biked, across the North to South Africa. So I had experience with how wonderful it is to, it's a, it's a great way to see a country, to engage with people along the way. Um, and it sort of ties to my cultural interest in people and, and places. And so it had, it was an idea that I had before I was sick that, oh, one day, you know, I'll bike across America. And when I got sick, I thought, well, I can put that idea, <laughs> tuck that one away and, you know, live vicariously through someone else. Um, but I can still bike. I'm actually a stronger biker now than I am a runner. And, and it, so it is something I can do. And I think I'm really excited now. I want to, I do want to see our country that way. I want to engage with people along the way. And I am really looking forward to connecting with other lung cancer patients. Um, there's a, a very lively online community of patients, but because of privacy concerns and others, um, you, it's difficult sometimes to, to connect to people face to face. And this 
bike ride, I've been able to reach out to that community and sort of, I know where people are along my path and, you know, we're, we're making plans to meet face to face and share our experiences. And, and actually, I just think putting a, a face to these, um, email names and, and code names sometimes we use on the internet is just going to be an, a really fabulous experience for me. Okay. So you're mapping out this whole game plan. Can you tell me a little bit about the logistics? Um, how many people are you biking with? What kind of support? Do you have a support van that's going to go with you? <laughs> Stay in, uh, how many miles are you going to go per day? Yes. Yeah, so just the first thing that I, I said when I said I was going to do this was I would love company, but I I have to have a mechanic. <laughs> so, so I have um, two great people from VeloFix who are going to um, travel with me and and be fully supporting the the ride from a technical bike perspective. Um, and I'm very grateful that I will have that support. I am I'm hoping that family and friends. I have a a number of about 20 of us will actually start in San Diego. And I've reached out to bike clubs and communities in each of the cities that I'll be, the major cities I'll be passing through so that they can ride, you know, into or out of that city with me. Um, And as part of that, engaging with those bikes groups, bikers, I intend to share the messaging about you know, lung cancer and the facts and, and just raise awareness in, in all the different ways I can. We're trying to host awareness, raising activities in homes and health clubs and, you know, any venue we can find. I've even reached out to rotary clubs, (laughs) you know, it's, it's really a grassroots effort at, at raising awareness. Um, but I'm excited about it. And, and I think we're going to reach a lot of people. This way, you're, you're going to use social media tools. I take it absolutely all the yeah um, the sort of branding of the bike ride is bike um, breathe believe, and there'll be a website bikebreathebelieve.org, and then an Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> I'll actually have a young younger person along the way just to manage all of that, uh, which is going to be so helpful. It sounds like you'll have a cheering section built in of people that you've gotten to know online with lung cancer yes, already. Yes. And then you, you'll probably expand beyond that as more people become aware of what you're doing. Yes, that's the hope. Once the website is up, which it will be this week, um, there's going to be a link to participation. And I would welcome you know, participation from everyone who wants to participate in one way or the other, you know, through riding with me through joining the events. Um, there'll actually be a, a donation link for people who want to support um, organizations doing research and supporting people with lung cancer. Bikebreathebelieve.com. Is that it? Dot org. Yep. Bikebreathebelieve.org. Yes. Bikebreathebelieve. Um, and how many days is this going to take, do you think? So we've mapped it out to be 46 days and Part of it being, you know, that long is that I need to go back to Sloan Kettering for treatment in the middle. And so I'll lose two days there. And then we're spending a day in each of the big cities. So San Diego, Phoenix, El Paso, Austin, Houston, New Orleans, uh, 
in Pensacola and then um, Jacksonville to do awareness events. And I also promised my mother I'd be home for Easter. So I'm going to ride through my hometown (laughs) for Easter weekend in Crowley, Louisiana and, and spend Easter with my family. With a little break in the middle to fly to Sloan Kettering to get checked out and then go back to biking. Exactly. Uh, your doctor's okay. Obviously, they must be okay with you doing this. Yes. Well, that is one of the beautiful things about a stage four diagnosis <laughs> is that they pretty much give you a free pass <laughs> to do what you want to do um, within reason. But yes, he, um, you know, I, I, I have a stable skin. My, my cancer's stable at the moment. And so, um, yes, he said, go for it. So I'm going to. Isabella Delahousse, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's a very inspiring, uplifting story of, I think all of us can take to heart on how to live our lives fully and make every day count. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.